Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. We engage in the study of the Hebrew Bible in its ancient Near Eastern context and original languages to promote good and reasonable interpretation of Scripture so that the church might live more faithfully in the present. Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. I'm Matthew Delaney, here with Dr. French, as usual, and today we have a very special guest who has a very unique connection to Dr. Nathan French. So I'm actually going to let him introduce our special guest. We're going to have an awesome conversation about biblical studies, the book of Zechariah, and more. So Natan, why don't you go ahead and take it away? Yeah, so I'm so excited. I can't wait to introduce our guest today. His name is uh, Dr. Yosef Zakovich. He is Associate Professor of Old Testament at the Master's Seminary uh, and an elder at Grace Community Church. And a uh, little, little of his background after receiving his B.A. from UCLA and an MDiv and THM from the Master's Seminary. Uh, Yosef completed an M.A. at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and a Ph.D. from Harvard University, where he focused on Near Eastern languages and civilizations. Dr. Zakovich grew up in a Christian home, but he repented of his sin and committed to following Christ at age 17. At the Master Sem Seminary currently, Dr. Zakovich teaches Hebrew exegesis, exegesis of Messianic texts, and the art of Bible translation, among other classes. He was part of a translation committee that worked on the Legacy Standard Bible. He now serves as the managing editor of the Master Seminary Journal, and he oversees the Tyndale Center for Bible Translation at the Master's Seminary at Grace Community Church. Dr. Zakovich serves as an elder and co-leads a fellowship group with Dr. Avner Chow. So it is a delight to bring Yosef Zakovich. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Well, I just want to say thank you for having me. It's Nathan, it's so good to be reconnected with you. And Mati, it's really nice to meet you. Um, yeah. Hopefully, one day we can connect in person. I know that we're doing this uh, yeah. via the internet right now. And by the way, can I just add that I'm in London right now. I'm finishing yes. off my sabbatical <laughs> uh, from the Master Seminary, and I'm spending part of that here in London. And I'm just so thankful that I can be here. And I'm thankful that I can connect with you guys from yeah. London. It's such a yes. blessing. Exactly. And now previous to this, Joe was actually in Israel doing some research and uh, spending some time, I think, with some family there as well. Uh, now, Joe's one of my best friends in all the world, and he's actually uh, probably the first person that I met when I stepped onto the campus of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem back in 2009. I walked into the Kafar Hasudan team, which was the place where we were all staying, our apartments, walked into my apartment that had three rooms, and I was immediately greeted by this face here. <laughs> <laughs> and it was an instant connection of friendship. And dare I, well, I will, I'll use the, the reformed language. It was providential. Yes. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> I remember that. It, it was 12 years ago now. Can we believe it was that long ago? I remember that. It was yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, good to, times. To, yeah. Go ahead, Mati. Yeah. Sorry to our podcast listeners who aren't getting to see, you know, these, these wonderful smiley faces, these you know, Israeli <laughs> raised scholars over here but um yeah it's awesome having you here and by the way you, you you failed to mention what's going to make our podcast listeners especially jealous is you just finished a trip to israel where you got mm. to spend some time there so that's we always yeah. love people get a chance to get to mm. go back yeah we had a, a uh we went with the master seminary for a month and my family well two of my brothers were there with me and then after a month in israel and also a a um 
half of a week in Jordan. Uh, after that, I came here to London to finish off my sabbatical. Excellent. Nice. Absolutely excellent. Well, let's just dive right in. Let's do I it. think we would love to start by hearing a little bit about your your journey and with a special focus on how did you get into biblical studies, um, your educational journey, and what are your biggest interests within this field? Yeah, well, my journey really started back when I was a kid. And as uh, Nathan mentioned, I became a believer when I was 17. But I grew up in former Soviet Union, and I grew up in a Christian home. And the first book I remember reading was the children's Bible. So I was exposed mm -hmm. to the Bible ever since I was a kid, and I absolutely loved the Bible growing up. But I came to faith when I was 17, when I realized that, you know what, just being from a Christian family is not enough. You have to personally confess your sin, and you have to personally recognize the Lordship of Christ and confess Him as your Messiah and as your King. Uh, in order for his blood to cover your sin and for uh, him to become your master and your king. Um, and so I was familiar with the Bible since I was a kid, uh, but I really um, fell in love with the study of the Bible in its original languages when I was going to college, high school and college. And I think there was this significant moment in time when I was talking to one of my friends at UCLA as an undergrad, and I was telling him about Jesus, the Messiah, who is God, who died for our sins. Uh, and uh, I cited to him Zechariah 12.10, where it talks about the crucifixion of Christ. And, you know, God says, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And so I was referring to that passage to show him that Christ is the Messiah. He was the one who was pierced. And yet he is God because God is saying they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Right. And at that point, I didn't know any Hebrew. And so I'm saying this to him. And he comes from a Jewish background. He knew some Hebrew. He was studying Hebrew at that time. And he says to me, well, actually, the Hebrew doesn't say that. And at that moment, <laughs> I was just, you know, uh, stunned. And I didn't know what to say. And so that ended that conversation. And that <laughs> moment was a significant moment for me, uh, which caused me not only to realize, but to be even more motivated that I really need to learn Hebrew. I need to learn Greek. I need to learn Aramaic, to learn the languages of the Bible so that I can evangelize, so that I can, so that I can speak about the Bible uh, from the original languages um, and have those conversations. And so at that point, you know, that was a distinctive point for me that said, uh, that made me realize that I want to learn the Bible in its original languages. And so when I graduated UCLA, uh, there was a question, okay, do I go to seminary? Uh, do I pursue English and Russian literature, which was my major? Do I get a PhD in that? Or do I uh, study the Bible? And, you know, I went to study the Bible at TMS in the Master Seminary, then of course, Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and then the PhD. And here I am teaching at the Master Seminary, uh, Old Testament things, languages, uh, the Messiah class translation, just absolutely loving it and absolutely grateful. Uh, but th this was my you know, brief journey to being where I am at this point. That's good. Thank you for sharing your story. Love getting yeah. to hear this. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could go and maybe unveil a little bit more about your time at Hebrew University of Jerusalem, since that's where you and Nathan, that's where you guys met. And it's such a unique education experience. What what are maybe some things that you walked away from that experience with? Yeah, well, number one, it was just such a blast and a blessing to be with Nathan, <laughs> to live with him fun, uh, yeah. and to interact with him on a regular basis. 
uh, and, you know, talk. We were in Hebrew classes all the time, but yep. outside of class, we were talking about scripture. We were talking mm-hmm. about the gospel. And, and uh, that was such a wonderful two years for me. Uh, but I think the biggest thing, uh, the biggest um, takeaway for me from Israel was that I came there to study the Bible in its original languages. And that's what I got. I yeah. studied mm-hmm. biblical Hebrew for all two years, uh, studied uh, modern Hebrew for the six levels. And then we had the Torah, which is the, um, the ex- it's called the exemption exam, but uh, the exit exam, that's what it's called, the Torah, the ex- exit exam that says that, okay, you've uh, studied all of these levels of Hebrew. We studied Akkadian and a few other things there too. Uh, but it made me walk away with that skill that I came there for in order to study the Bible better and to pursue it further beyond that. So good. So good. And I admit, I mean, I, when I look back on studying Akkadian with Elnatan for all those hours, two days a week, you just, it's nothing but like, oh, I miss that. I really miss just sitting there listening to, it's just great. Yeah. And I remember in that Akkadian class, um, <laughs> they would give us a break during Christmas. And most of the professors understood that we were American students. So we, you know, recognized and celebrated Christmas. Um, and Natan, our professor, he said, well, you guys are in Israel and uh, you don't need a Christmas break, do you? And so he didn't give us a Christmas break. So during that week, we continued to meet four hours a day on Tuesday and on Thursday, I think it was. So um, that was our Christmas break, studying a studying a It was beautiful. It really was beautiful. We loved yeah. Natan. Yeah, all the time. Such great memories, Natan. I wonder, do you want to speak about what your experience was like with Yosef, maybe, or you know, with Joe, giving us a little bit more behind well, the scenes? Joe, Joe's great. He is this uh, very disciplined, very focused individual, and studying with him was fantastic because he he always brought sort of the challenge to do better. And this is what I love about him and his work. And I know that this is just rubbing off on his students like nothing else, uh, bringing excellent expertise and scholarship um, uh, to the table and, and all that he does, because he was doing that as a student. And and it was it was great to see that on the on the personal side. Yossi's just such a, uh, a, a wonderful characters have already described just a very fun, loving, enjoying person to be around. And he really loves the Lord. And that's what's really great about about Yosef. We would talk about the Lord a lot. We talk about scripture. Mm-hmm. We'd grapple with some theological things. And and uh, it, it's it's truly at the core of his heart to serve the Lord and to serve out his calling uh, on behalf of the Lord. And and, that, and that's really what I love, really love deeply about Yossi. So just as an example, I was worshiping at my Kehilah on the Shabbat Eve, uh, as Shabbat <laughs> was ending on a Saturday night. And we always have cake and coffee and everything afterwards at this Kehilah that I was at. It was Binyan Klal, and we were at the very top of the building. So always love that. You can see this, watch sunsets of Jerusalem every night and uh, or during that Shabbat Eve. But anyways, I was sent away with a cake. And it was toward our ending moment at Hebrew University. Mm-hmm. And uh, Yossi didn't live in the same apartment anymore. He had moved uh, uh, into, I think, with an Israeli, right, to practice Hebrew right. uh, and to do all that, to live on the other side. And so I uh, received this cake. And uh, not maybe five minutes later, I get this text on my phone from uh, Joe saying, come to my room. I have something to tell you. So I, I get there. He tells me some news 
uh, about applying for PhD work. And he said, Harvard said yes. And so I thought, here's another providential moment from the Lord. Uh, Harvard said yes for him doing a PhD there. And so we had some cake to celebrate right at that moment. And this is it. How amazing, right? How amazing. Those, those, Uh, Those are some of the most precious moments. Just exactly. seeing God's providence. And obviously, you know, it's God's providence that he put us together initially to meet. And I think, Nathan, just to add to what you're saying, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that you and I shared was the reason that we came there for. That's uh, right. Which was in order to serve Christ in a more refined way, to be more mm-hmm. precise, to be more excellent at what we were doing. That's and right. here we are, right? Fulfilling or, or seeking to fulfill that, seeking to be faithful. That's right. Yeah. It's just so amazing to see God's providence in the past, in the present, and looking forward to what he's going to do in the future as well. Amen. Yeah, exactly. So, so good. Yeah, that's very inspiring. And I think that resonates with a lot of our listeners. The reason that people um, are watching this on YouTube, listening to this on podcast platforms is because they take what you're saying seriously. And yeah. not all of our paths look the same. Most of us aren't going to get a PhD, for example, but ultimately we're all here because we want to serve Christ and the ways that he leads us in, do that in an excellent way. And part of that is involved in taking scripture seriously. That's right. Understanding that in a very holistic way and remembering we are the body of Christ and the different roles certain people play. And it's nice that we don't have to be the ones who have all the answers, who've done all the digging and all the searching. And so we can bring people from all over the world like Yosef, for example, to share their research. And I think that's actually a good segue to talking about one of the most recent projects that you've done, that the Lord's led you to work on, uh, which is a commentary on the book of Zechariah. This is such a cool cover. I love how this book looks right here. It is great, yeah. And so um, we'll talk about this book and tell people where they can get this book uh, later, and you can look for links in the show notes below. But... Can you maybe start first by just giving us an elevator pitch for Zachariah? Like why, you know, what, what makes Zachariah such a great book? Yeah, well, this commentary is part of a series, the MacArthur Old Testament commentary series, MOTCs, the way that it's referred to in short. And it's really a, a, a complement to the New Testament, MacArthur New Testament commentary series, um, which is completed in its fullness. Uh, John MacArthur, he's the pastor of the church that I go to, and he and a team of people have been working on the New Testament commentary series. And so now, with that being done, we're now beginning the Old Testament commentary series. And we began with Zechariah. Um, One of the reasons we began with Zechariah is because we all love the book of Zechariah. Our pastor loves the book of Zechariah, as do we, but also because it speaks so much to what God has been doing to what God was doing at the time of Zechariah, as well as to the future, how God plans to fulfill his uh, providential decree of what's going to happen to this world, to us, to sin, uh, to to Satan, uh, and just looking at the book, at God's word, at God's promises, and seeing how all of that is going to come to play. Uh, is such an encouraging experience, which is what it was intended to be for the people of Zechariah as well. But you mentioned the elevator pitch, right? So what what would be the elevator pitch to the book of Zechariah? And I think it's in the name Zechariah, right? The the name (laughs) Zechariah, Zechariah, means Yahweh remembers. That's good. And that's what God was trying to say to the people is that 
Israelites, I remember. I remember the promises that I made to you. I remember the the prophecies that I gave to the prophets. I remember yeah. all of these things, right? And the interesting thing about God remembering or the word remember being used in the Bible is that whenever God remembers, that means that he's acting. It's not just a cognitive experience. It's that God is acting. Uh, God is acting. If you remember in the book of Genesis, when God sends the flood and Noah and his family, they're on the um, in the ark. And after they've been in the ark for some time, 150 days or so, uh, it says that and then God remembered and he sent the wind. Well, God didn't forget. The fact that it says that God remembered means that God began to act. He continued to fulfill the plan. And part of the plan was to uh, originally to send the flood, but then to dry out all of the water and to um, start a new population through Noah. And so here, when God sends Zechariah to prophesy to the Israelites, you have a group of Israelites who came from exile. They're excited, but they're also distressed because it's hard to come back to restart your life. You have the enemies around who are persecuting them. And God sends Zechariah to the people and he says to them, hey, I remember the things that I've promised you. I remember I'm going to fulfill them. And so the point of that is I'm going to be faithful to you. You have my word. So you be faithful to me, right? And so I guess my in one sentence, what is Zechariah about? And it's about the fact that God remembers. That's so powerful. And that I think is. you're giving a great case study for why studying the Bible in original languages is important. Yeah. Because, you know, when we think about how we use the word remember in English, it's often just a, it's a cognitive experience mm-hmm. because I forgot something. Where when you trace this word, particularly with this word, how it's associated with the Lord, we notice that it's a very different type of of nuanced understanding. And that also impacts the way when God calls us to remember, yeah. right? Or whenever God tells them, do this as a memorial, as a yeah. zikaron, yeah. what is it that he's calling us to do? Just, oh, yeah, let me cognitively remember something happened. It's, no, there's always action with it too. Yeah, I also find it interesting that you know, you're writing the Zachariah commentary or you, you know, it's already published, but you wrote the Zachariah commentary and this is kind of where part of your journey began with the mm-hmm. original languages. That it was a verse from Zachariah that you were, <laughs> that you right. were sharing with That's someone. That's a great so, point. Yeah. Very That's full a really circle. Great point. There's that problem. Actually, <laughs> exactly. If you remind me, I want to come back to that later on. Okay. Um, maybe mention a couple of things as well. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Totally. Well, and too, this is great because it, it really does show how important the Hebrew Bible, understanding Hebrew and understanding original languages like uh, like Monty is saying, even for the New Testament, right? With the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. I mean, this right. just runs across the entire uh, narrative of, of, of even the Testament. So, um, okay, so let's jump into this Zechariah then. So what yeah. is the overall, let's say, structure, style, and message of Zechariah? Well, first of all, I want to say that the book of Zechariah is beautiful. Right? That's mm. the biggest takeaway. And so if somebody is not familiar with it, I recommend reading it and getting to know it and just loving it. And this is not to say that it's easy. People have said that it's one of the hardest books to understand or to study in the Old Testament. And, you know, maybe there are other hard books, uh, but it's such a beautiful book. And if you mm. look at the text itself, it can be divided into a couple of um, different um, sections. You have chapters one through six, where God sends visions to Zechariah, uh, and the point of these the visions is to encourage Zechariah 
in order to encourage the people. Then you have uh, Zechariah 7 and 8, where God confronts the people, and, and then he describes the kingdom, and there he's encouraging them through confrontation and the kingdom. And mm. then you have the last part, which is uh, God describes the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And I'll just leave it uh, generally that way, but it's God encouraging Zechariah and the people by giving uh, the description of the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And the whole point of this, again, is to encourage the people. And mm. this is not uh, a shallow encouragement, right? It's encourage them to be faithful to yeah. God. The yeah. way he encourages them is by saying, I'm faithful to you, so you be faithful to me. And that's the message throughout the entire book. Excellent. That's excellent. That, that's super clear. I, I found that one of the most helpful things for me when engaging books of the Bible, but particularly in the Hebrew Bible, where it can feel a little more complicated to approach is what's the structure. And that helps mm -hmm. me see what's the big picture message. How does this all fit together? And even the structure, as you laid it out again, it, it, it shows your elevator pitch is you know, true. When you, when you follow through the big picture message, it's, mm -hmm. it's still about God remembering mm -hmm. and God giving encouragement and hope. And I love your point about, it's not just, a shallow encouragement, but there, it's such a yeah, deep, substantive good. encouragement. Yeah, so I think it's so good. It's so providential that God sends a prophet who's named Zechariah, right? Mm -hmm. The whole message is about God remembering, and the name of the prophet who is bringing that message is God remembers. So even yeah. there, God implements his providence in the way that he communicates with the people and interacts with his people. Yeah, so good. Yeah, and on like an eschatological level, like you said, uh, it's 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 um, it, it gives a hope that's really anchored, right? It's a true hope that that if it is the Lord Himself who is doing the remembering, we can rest that the future will be good, right? It will be blessed. It will be as He says in that sense. So we can put real hope and real faith, real trust, as we talked in a previous episode, we talked about faith and risk, that you can trust the risk that comes along with the words uh, that require us to be faithful to the words of, of the Lord himself, because um, he will be the one to remember and do what he says. So it's just, it, it's it's really a great book uh, with uh, with the name of this prophet in this way. So it's so good you brought that up. So with the book of Zechariah, it's probably hard to choose one section <laughs> that is the best because obviously the, the end section we have a lot of quotations and allusions from the new testament which are really fun to dive into the beginning you have these vivid visions which are also really special i'd love to talk a little about these visions that that zachariah sees and experiences do you have a favorite vision among this collection or maybe there are a few that you want to touch on maybe you can give us a little taste of the visions in zachariah yeah and you know it's interesting uh, that god sends these visions again to encourage Zechariah. And there's eight visions, and they are different. Each one is um, a, a specific vision in its own right that intends to encourage the people. So let me just run through them real quick. The first vision is about a man on a red horse among the myrtle trees. And the point there is that God is ready to go to war on behalf of the people of God. The second vision is four horns and a craftsman that Zechariah sees. And the point there is that there are four empires that are going to rise up and they're going to attack Israel. And ultimately, God will conquer them and Christ will be the final craftsman who reigns as king over Israel. You have a third vision that Zechariah sees, and that's a man with a measuring rod and he's measuring Jerusalem. 
And whenever you measure something, that means that you're preparing to build it. And what God is saying there is that Jerusalem is going to be restored and it's going to become an inhabited place, a place where people dwell. Then you have the fourth and the fifth visions, which are interesting because they're at the very center. And both of them happen to be about the Messiah. Because the Messiah is the central piece of these visions. He's the focus and he's the the point of the hope that God is delivering to the people. So the fourth vision is about Joshua, the high priest, how he's standing there and covered in filthy garments. And the Messiah comes and removes those filthy garments and then gives him clean garments. And then you have the fifth uh, vision that Zechariah sees, and that's the menorah, the candelabra. Uh, and that the point there is that Jesus is the light of the world, or the Messiah is the light of the world. You have a sixth vision that Zechariah sees, and that's a flying scroll, a massive flying scroll with the scripture on the front and on the back. And the idea there is that not a jot or a tittle of the word of God will pass away, but that God mm-hmm. will judge the world by the word that he has given, which is his holiness it's the standard that he has set for us then you have the seventh vision that Zechariah sees and that's a woman in a small basket and she is being carried uh, by two uh, demons it seems uh, to Shinar and Shinar is in Babylon and so what you have is you have a, a woman being carried to Babylon which is a preview of the woman of Babylon that we see in Revelation 17 the harlot of Babylon And the idea there is that uh, a false system is going to be established, uh, but ultimately God will destroy this system. And then you have the final uh, eighth vision, and that's a vision of four horses and chariots, uh, which demonstrate that God will judge the nations and he will set up the messianic kingdom. And as I think about these eight visions, I got to say that my favorite one, it's hard to choose a favorite one, but just for the purposes (laughs) of this conversation, I think my favorite one is probably the vision about Joshua, the high priest. That's the fourth one where he's covered in filth. And then the Messiah comes and he removes the filthy garments and he gives them clean garments. And the reason I appreciate this vision so much is because it's such a clear reflection of Christ's work Mm -hmm. for us that, you know, he died on the cross for us. We are filthy with our rags, but, Christ covers us with his righteousness and he saves us and he sanctifies us and he makes us his own and he uses us as his ambassadors. And so just seeing that in the vision where Christ, the Messiah, does this to Joshua, such a beautiful picture of what he did for us and, you know, something that we will continually worship him in eternity, um, singing the new song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We'll be singing that for eternity. And we see a a glimpse of that in the vision about Joshua. So I just love that. All of those visions, but particularly that one. Excellent. Yeah, that's really special. And your last point makes me think about Isaiah. And I'm curious if you see a connection there, how Isaiah, before he's called, he also has this experience where he he says, I'm a person of unclean lips amongst Mm -hmm. some people of unclean lips. And and you have the the seraph that, that brings the... Uh, the coal, I believe, and puts on his tongue and it has this transformative experience. And so this seems to be a theme throughout the Bible that we see that these people, these people that God calls, I think all of us, we would look in the mirror at some point in our life and we would see hypocrisy. We would see that, that who I am doesn't line up, but that's something that God is obviously not afraid of and that he comes Mm -hmm. in and he cleanses us uh, and equips us for the call that we have. 
Exactly. Yeah. And Isaiah says that, right? He, he recognizes, I am unworthy. I am undone, he mm. says, right? And the only way that he can be used by God is if God actually intervenes and does something with Isaiah. Yeah, and good. he does that by cleansing him. Yeah. And there's absolutely this theme across the scripture where we're completely unworthy. And the only way we become worthy or become useful is because of the work of Christ in our lives. So this is very good, too, because it goes back to the whole idea of, of the Lord remembering, um, mm-hmm. because it, it, it even in that Isaiah passage, of course, Isaiah is there. He sees <clears throat> the divine court. And um, even after after the cleansing, you get this uh, who will go for us. Right. And so you have this sense of the divine court and and that's what's really beautiful here, because in one of the visions, of course, we have judgment that God will judge the nations. But in his remembering, his desire, even like the remembrance in the flood, is to cleanse humanity, right, is to save humanity and to bring humanity out of the darkness, out of sin and death. And you need you need a high priest to do it, don't you? You need a real priest exactly. to come forth to bring forth the cleansing that needs to happen. This is what's great about uh, not just ignoring the sacrificial system of ancient Israel, ignoring Leviticus. It's very important that we understand uh, the priestly traditions that are running through the ancient Israelite sources so that we can uh, understand better this uh, this cleansing aspect of Christ's work for us in the New Testament, uh, that that structure was there in the Hebrew Bible to bring cleansing to Israel so that God could remain in their in, in, in their midst so too in the New Testament, we have an even greater high priest, right? Who can cleanse us from sin forever and ever. Yeah. And actually, if I may just go to another point that you're bringing up already, is that Christ, the Messiah, is the priest. Yes. And Zechariah addresses this. Right? Mm-hmm. We think of the Messiah as the king, and he is the king. And yep. Zechariah addresses this as well. But he's also referred to as the priest in Zechariah. So here so, you have... Yeah, the king so this priest, is good. but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, let's do that. Let's go to the priest king. So we have that in Zechariah 6. We also, I think there, is there a reference in Zechariah 4? I can't remember. I, I feel like there might be or something, but. The, the uh, clearest one is Zechariah 6. You're yes, right. right. So go ahead. Tell us about this priest king idea. How does it arise in ancient Israel or, or, or what is it even at this point? Why one figure when these institutions seem to be so separated? You know, right. Yeah. And they are separate. And I think we can just take a step back and try to understand what this is. Um, In Israel, God established various offices. And one of the offices was the office of the priest. And the other office was the office of Hmm. the king. And they were separate. They were intended to be separate. They were separate from the very beginning because the priests come from Levi. That's one son. And then the kings come from Judah. That's another son. So there's two different uh, offices to different people there and god as god continues uh this system through israel he prohibited one office from crossing over into the other office yeah it's good uh, and you know th- they were supposed to keep each other accountable you can see that with the kings when uh, an israelite would become a king then the the priest would come and he would observe or he would watch over the king as the king wrote down the Torah. So you have each office fulfilling that role. You see that in Deuteronomy 17, actually, where the the priest makes sure that the king writes the Torah correctly. And Mm. they were never supposed to cross over offices. And this is kind of like even the United States today, Uh uh, right? You have the president and then you have the Supreme Court justice. 
they're two different offices, two different people. Why? Because they keep each other accountable. And we've seen yeah. that in the news uh, recently. Uh, but imagine mm -hmm. if the president said, I am now going to become the Supreme Court justice. Yeah, I'm going exactly. to be president and I'm going to be the Supreme Court justice, That's the good. chief justice, right? No, you can't have that. That's against the Constitution of America. That's against the entire makeup of the American system. Well, you had something similar in Israel where God himself prohibited this. Uh, and if somebody tried to cross over between systems, then they would be punished by God. And we do have an example of that in Second uh, Chronicles 26. The king Uzziah, he's a king of Israel, but he goes into the temple and he tries to offer sacrifices, which is what the priests were supposed to do. And God punishes him with leprosy because you were mm -hmm. never supposed to do that. And yet you have prophecies about the Messiah who will mm. be both a king and a priest. Wow. And you, you, go, you can go back where you can see um, a prefigurement, if you will, of this in Genesis 14, where Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. Or you can go to Psalm 110, where it describes the Messiah as being both a king and a priest. And then here in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, where it's referring to the Messiah, and it says that he is going to be both a king and a priest. And in verse 13, um, it says that he will be a priest. The Messiah will be a priest on his throne, which is the okay. place of the king. Right. <laughs> and then it says that the peace or the council of peace will be between the two places or the two offices of the priest and the king. So the Messiah is actually going to fulfill both of these offices in his one person. How can the Messiah do this? Well, because the Messiah is going to make all things new, right? The Messiah as the priest redeems the people. and He represents the people before God spiritually. The Messiah as the king, he reigns over the people and he represents the people before God politically. And he will do both of these offices. He will fulfill both of these offices perfectly because he is perfect. And only he can fulfill these offices together in one person. And that's what Zechariah points to in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. So good. So good. See, it reminds me because it's great you brought up Melchizedek or Melchizedek because if we go back to, uh, and Monty and I have talked about this a little bit, if you go back to ancient Sumer, and you look at earliest civilizations and especially human govern governance and the structure that's happening there, you have within those city-states a priest-king model uh, at the very beginning. And eventually that that is separated, especially as you go out into, into greater Mesopotamia. But um, you see it with Mel with, with Melchizedek, who is priest king mm -hmm. of Salem. And so that that model was was there in the ancient world, probably some of the first models of human governance that we have. Uh, and it's interesting then to see that within ancient Israel, that separation happening. But of course, there is that tension, right? Because the Lord is dwelling as king in the midst of his people. Even to Samuel, when they request a king, the Lord says to Samuel, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. And so then to know that you have the Aaronite priesthood, you have the, the Levitical priesthood, and their job, of course, to steward the presence of the king in their midst we need another figure that can do both, right? That can stand in the place to do both. And, I, and, and this vision of Zechariah that in some sense, as you said, the Messiah does a new thing within mm -hmm. the structures of ancient Israel. 
But in another sense, he's almost resurrecting and bringing back the most ancient form of human governance, uh, even that we would see in Genesis 2 and 3 with, with Adam as the priest king of the garden or something right. to that light, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the only reason he's able to do this is because he's sinless, right? Because he's yeah, perfect. He's the only person who can actually fulfill this. Every king in Israel, every priest in Israel, they were all humans. They were all sinful. Well, they couldn't even fulfill a single office the way that the way that God demands. Yeah. How could they fulfill two offices? Right. <laughs> and right so God good. has the Messiah fulfill both of them in one person. Yeah. Yeah. It creates this, this uh, amazing picture of, of Jesus is truly the one stop shop for everything that I need. Because I think as humans, we're, we're aware that there's no one place or person I can go to. Yet the, the picture of the Messiah is this person that it somehow is embodying all of these things, all these components. And I just I just listened to a video this morning, actually. This might be a little too left field, but I find it interesting. There's a story I believe in Matthew where Jesus says, you know, if you being wicked, uh, you're still parents that if your kid asks for fish, you're not going to give them a snake. No. You know, you're going to you're going to give them. Uh, you're going to give good things. Well, in Luke's version of that, of that story, he says that, uh, you know, God being a good heavenly father, he gives you the Holy Spirit. And the way that this pastor exegeted that is what, what's the point there is that ultimately that God's gifts is that he's giving himself that the things mm. that we need, he's giving us of himself. And so when we think about the Messiah and all who he is, that's who we're seeking for, for everything. Do you have any more thoughts on this priest king concept before we shift gears? There's obviously a lot we can unpack here, um, or we can move on to the next part of our discussion. I, I so, have one. I have one yeah, here. Maybe this will help. So, as Joseph was saying, of this creating all, um, Joe, as Joe was saying, creating all these things anew. Um, this is important for us too, as the church, isn't it? Because the New Testament will say we are a kingdom of priests, uh, and of course, in the Reformed tradition. Uh, the priesthood of all believers is at the very core of, of, of Protestantism, very, very much at the very core of the theological traditions of which we are all a part. Um, and, and it's important that we all know that, that this model of the Messiah, since we are in him, is also a model that is very instructive and important for our own practical lives. Like we are to live as priests in this kingdom for which we will be forever and ever as it comes to earth. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, yeah amen yeah. to that. Yeah, that's exactly. really good. So, um, you've already—it's amazing—you've already hit this with almost every question we've that we've we've <laughs> asked so far. But I wonder if there's any other way you want to talk about how Zechariah fits in relation to the New Testament. Maybe you touch on some of those later chapters in Zechariah. Is there any other way, or if you feel like you've already answered it fully, we can we can go to a different topic. No, this is a great question. I think it's an, a, a really important question uh, because. As we opened at the very beginning, Zechariah not only talks about the past or about the present of Zechariah's time, Zechariah also talks about the future, right? Uh, Zechariah, he prophesied in around 520 BC. Christ comes in, uh, you know, the beginning of the millennium, the as we call it, zero or one uh, BC through uh, through the end of his life, 33 years, uh, but. 500 years later, Zechariah is speaking about that as well. He's prophesying about that. And then he also goes into the future beyond that, things that the New Testament speaks about. 
So if you think about Zechariah and the New Testament, you do mm-hmm. have very specific prophecies about good. the first coming of Christ as well as the second coming of Christ. You can just think about the first coming of Christ, right? In Zechariah 9.9, which is a very famous passage that we're familiar with, the triumphal entry of Jesus, where it says that he's going to come on a donkey, on the fall of a donkey. We see that in Zechariah 9. Um, we we can go to Zechariah 11. We see the betrayal of the Messiah. And it says specifically for 30 pieces of silver, which is the description that we see in Matthew 26, where Judas betrays Jesus. Uh, we can go to the crucifixion yeah. of Jesus. And in Zechariah 12.10, the verse that I already mentioned, uh, describes how the people will look upon him whom they have pierced. Well, John refers to that verse when he's describing the crucifixion of Jesus, John 19.37. And he says that that passage was speaking about Christ. You can go to Zechariah 14 that describes the second coming of Jesus when he reigns as king. And uh, one of my favorite verses in Zechariah 14.9, it says that Yahweh will be king over all the earth. And that day Yahweh will be the only one in his name one. And now that's the fulfillment of what God intended from the very beginning. Even when he said to Israel, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Well, in Zechariah 14.9, it says that Yahweh will be king over all the earth. He will be one, which, mm. which will be the fulfillment of that. So, you know, you look at Zechariah and then you think about the New Testament. There are many specific prophecies about the first coming and about the second coming uh, of Jesus' life. So good. Uh, Well, you know, on that note, because we are coming to the end of this episode, let's have you walk us through a section or a chapter of Zechariah, reading the text and giving comments and insights that you see and uh, do the same. We'll, uh, we'll listen along and follow along. And this should be, this should be very fun and very good. This is a premier scholar, Harvard trained, (laughs) Hebrew University trained, telling you about Zechariah. Yeah, well, we can turn to Zechariah 12.10. I mentioned this verse at the beginning, Mati, and you pointed that out. And I want to come back to that verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible for a number of reasons. Um, But one of the reasons is because of the richness of it, what it tells us. And the verse itself says, Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Mm. Now, the speaker of this passage is God. You go to the beginning of chapter 12, and it says that Yahweh is the one who is speaking this verse. The context of this entire passage of this of the whole of chapter 12 is the second coming or it's the end times of Christ. You know, in the verse first uh, nine verses, 12, one through nine, Zechariah describes the physical salvation of Israel when all of the nations are going to attack Israel. But by the power of God, they're going to defeat those enemies. And then Zechariah 12, 10 through 14 describes the spiritual salvation of Israel where the Israelites are going to realize that Christ is the Messiah and they're going to confess Christ as their Messiah and as their king. Mm. And so while the passage itself is describing the second coming, the end times, it's referring to the first coming of Christ. So you have both of these in this one verse. Now, when 
it says, I will pour out in the house of David. Like I said, God is the one who is speaking. Mm. So it immediately catches your attention. God says, I will pour out in the house of David. And then he says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. Well, who is the me? It has to be God because God is the one who's speaking. Well, if God is the one who's speaking and he says that they will look on me whom they have pierced, that raises the question, what does that mean that God will be pierced? Who was pierced? Who was crucified? It was Christ, right? And so what does this mean about Christ? It means that Christ is God. Christ is uh, a deity. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the passages for me that is most convincing about the deity of Christ. Mm. And uh, I mentioned previously that when John describes the crucifixion of Christ in John uh, chapter 19, he refers, he actually cites this verse and he says that this was referring to Christ. And so So you have in this verse, a reference to God describing the crucifixion of Christ. And yet he's the speaker. And so he is referring to himself and calling, um, or I should say, referring to himself as God. And so you see all of Israel at that point turn to Christ and recognize that he is the Messiah. Now, in this passage in Zechariah 12, it's referring to Israel, right? It's speaking about the Israelites who are going to recognize Christ as the Messiah. Well, what about the Gentiles? What about the nations? John takes this passage in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. He refers to it. He cites it. And he says that every eye will see him. And he says, even those who pierced him, the Israelites. But then he adds, all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And so he takes the passage that uh, was presented in the context of Israel. And he says that this applies to all of the nations. Mm. Because Christ's blood covers all of the sinners who repent. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish. It doesn't matter if you're Gentile. If you repent, Christ's blood will cover your sins. And so Mm. in this passage in Zechariah 12.10, we see the crucifixion of Christ. We see the forgiveness of our sins. We see the end where the nation of Israel turns to God. And then we see how this applies to all of the nations who repent uh, and recognize Christ as their Savior. Um, And so as I look at this passage and I see all of this richness in the passage, you know, I'm just... I'm encouraged Good. and I'm yeah. motivated to be faithful to God because yeah. it shows what God did for us, what God did for me as a sinner in order to save me. And so my response to this is I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful mm-hmm. to God. And that's exactly what Zechariah's point was, right? He brought the message to the Israelites to get them to be faithful to God. How? By showing what God was doing for them, by showing how God was faithful to them. And uh, Zechariah 12.10 does the very same thing, both to the Israelites mm-hmm. of Zechariah's time, uh, as well as to us today and to all of the people of all time who repent um, and who recognize Christ as the Savior. So good. I feel, you're, I feel like you're, you're, you're basically putting on display, here's Zechariah 101, how you can preach this book. And, <laughs> and I... You know, one of the things I really care about is is trying to create a bridge between what can feel like the academic world and the church. That's something that Nathan and I both care about. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when people will go really deep into academic study, some people have the experience that they have a hard time. How does this come back to 
me talking with my friends or family to being in a small group, being in church. And anyway, I think you've this whole conversation, but especially this last part you're showing here is how you can break down a passage from the Hebrew Bible in a way that is, um, yes, very informative, breaking down the meaning of the text, but also using it for the purpose of for speaking the bold message that this has and how does it connect to the story of the Bible as a whole. So yeah. uh, it's, it's really just it's an good. honor. I just love getting to hear you teach and how you do yeah, this. It's such, it's such an important point that you're making because God gave the scripture, God gave his word to the people, not to the scholars only, right? right. He gave it to the people, to good. all the people. And so as, as PhD educated scholars, right? Whoever they may be, the responsibility of the professors, of the pastors, of anybody who's teaching the Bible is to teach it in a way that everyone will understand it. That's right. Because that's what God's intent was. That's really the nature of scripture. It, it is understandable to everyone. You do have to spend time studying it, studying the scriptures though. But what you're saying, uh, Matthew, I just absolutely love that. And that's why I love the scripture. That's one of the reasons I love particularly Zechariah is because it comes out and becomes so alive and it's so encouraging in the end. Wow. So good. And I, I, you know, this line that you brought up here. So, and they will look upon me whom they pierced, right? Vehibitu Eli et asher de Karu, right? This very interesting point that you're making that it has to be the Lord that they're looking upon the one whom they pierced. And it's interesting because it ends with that. They will be mourning uh, with bitter grief as over a firstborn, right? Habichor is this last word here in Hebrew, this, this firstborn. And why not? I mean, the whole story of the Hebrew Bible of ancient Israel, I remember sitting uh, in a class at Hebrew university and being asked the question, who is God's firstborn son in the Hebrew Bible. And all these answers came forth. They were all the wrong answers. Nobody could say it's Israel. And it's right there in Exodus 4.22, Israel is my firstborn son. So it's fascinating then that the firstborn son of God, I mean, the Messiah himself, who is God's divine son, is the one whom the firstborn i.e. Israel, will look upon, right? The Israel of God mm. on the cross, and it is the nation of Israel, the first. It's this intertwining of the two stories that they will grieve over the firstborn son who has been pierced. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And it's the, the greatest grief that anyone could mourn. Yeah. And we see an example of that in Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac. Mm, very good. And we see that this is exactly what God the Father did with God the Son mm. by the power of God the Holy Spirit showing us that he went to such an ex extent in order to bring salvation to sinners. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's interesting you bring up Isaac too because the rabbinic tradition always said that the day that Isaac was conceived was the day that he suffered. Uh, and so there are some who make that connection to Jesus that the day that he suffered would have been, you know, during Passover, during that time. Uh, but then, um, and so that would have been the day that he was conceived. And then, of course, you go nine months forward from there, you get right around December 25th, you know. So some think that maybe the early church was going off of that rabbinic tradition with that. But uh, you see that here with the suffering in Zechariah, uh, how it points back even to the firstborn, Isaac himself, the miracle child of, of Abraham and, and Sarah, uh, 
very similar to the same suffering that is going to come upon the firstborn child of Mary and Joseph. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So before we tell people where they can get access to the commentary that you've written, I want to ask one last question. If there's anything that's just been on your heart recently, or we didn't ask a question you were hoping that we would ask, is there anything else that you'd want to share with people who are listening or watching today? Yeah, I want to reiterate the point that we mentioned a few times uh, throughout this conversation, and that's the importance um, and the beauty and the value of the book of Zechariah. And mm -hmm. that is, you know, how does it apply to us today? And the answer is that the people in Zechariah's time, they were both blessed and they were distressed at the same time because they came back to Israel. They tried to build the temple. They tried to establish their lives. And as soon as they tried to do that, enemies around them attacked them. Yeah. And the, and then God sent an encouragement to them and said to them, don't abandon me just because your life is hard. Don't abandon me just because it's easier that way. Be faithful because I'm going to be faithful to you. And so you take that today and it's the same principle. You know, the, the principle is that, look, is your life hard? Is your life challenging? Are you experiencing grief of some sort in your life? Well, God gave the revelation through Zechariah specifically to address that matter. Hmm. And he speaks through Zechariah in order to encourage his people, in order to uh, send them back to God, which is where we started. Be faithful to me because I am faithful to you. And the book is written 500 BC or so. And yet it's relevant for us 2,500 years later mm, because good. God is saying the same message to us today, even if our heart is difficult today. Amen. Good preaching. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Love this. Well, if you want to connect more with Yosef's content, uh, as we've talked about today, we have the MacArthur Old Testament commentary series, the, the volume on Zachariah. You can get this now at gracebooks.com, gracebooks.com. We'll have a link in the show notes to that at some point um, in the future. Right now, if you're listening to this right when we release, um, they might be not on Amazon as they're switching to a hardcover edition. But if you're listening to this later, you might find it there uh, wherever books are sold. Um, is there any other way people can connect more with your content or did I cover everything that we want to talk you, about today? Yeah, you covered everything. Great. Great. Excellent. Well, I want to say again, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Uh, thank you for saying yes to the calling on your life. And and I'm sure as you encouraged all of us, you've had difficulties in your life and you've stayed faithful to the Lord and you've produced a lot of great content for people like this book, people through your teaching and all sorts of things. So thank you so much, Nathan. Do you have any uh, final words to say for our episode about your friend here today? So good to see you. Can't wait to see you in person the next time it happens. So yeah. fantastic. We we really hope to have you back on again. And thank uh, you guys. Yeah. yeah.